They did tell me, you know, that um, Keith was flying out by Air France. <laughs> but not Concorde. Not Concorde, at any rate. Well, you've already ruined my first question because I was going to ask the ladies if they could recognise what aeroplane that was. I didn't think it was fair to let the men join in because they will clearly know what it is. Well, I can remember when Concorde first came into service with uh, British Airways in 1976. Um, probably some of you weren't born then, but why worry about that? Now, Concorde, believe it or not, used to cruise at two Mark 2.04. Now, people don't understand normally what a Mark number is, but a Mark number is, in fact, a ratio, but forget all that, of the speed versus the local speed of sound. So Mark 1 is the speed of sound. And at sea level, that's about 730-odd miles an hour. Pretty quick. But Concorde cruised at more than twice the speed of sound, at Mark 2.04. Now, it went so fast that it used to create friction along the fuselage, even at those elevated altitudes where the temperature is well, well below zero. And it would heat up, and the nose of Concorde would heat up to no less than 127 degrees C, which is a lot hotter than a boiling kettle, which is 100 degrees C, as you know. And in that heating up, Concorde would actually grow because of the heating effect. In fact, at cruising speed, it would be 13 inches longer than it was when it was sitting on the ground, which was great for the passengers because it gave them more leg room. <laughs> it also had a pointed nose, which when you took off and when you landed, it was just like it's shown in this picture. It was drooped. And the reason it was drooped is so that the pilots could see forward. Now, you say, well, what happens when it got up to cruising speed? Well, it used to lift that nose and it would cut off the vision of the pilots who were flying the aeroplane. So, in fact, when they were cruising at Mark II, they were blind to the outside. Now, I can remember one TV interviewer who was completely puzzled by this, talking to a Concorde pilot about the fact that if they couldn't see out of the aeroplane, how did they manage to dodge other aircraft? And the pilot listened sympathetically for a bit. And then he made this comment. He said, you know, he said, if you've got a Smith & Wesson revolver, 0.38 revolver, and you shoot it, he said, the muzzle velocity is about 500 miles an hour. He said, now Concorde's doing three times that speed. He said, have you ever tried dodging bullets? Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because it leads me fairly naturally, and you know I like aeroplanes at any rate, because it leads me quite naturally into one of my favourite stories in the Bible. It's a story of courage. It's a story of unjustified criticism. It's a story of victory for the underdog. It's about ignoring the odds. 
It's about belief in a righteous cause and ultimately complete confidence in God's support. If you just press the next slide, please, Robin. Robin, could you press the next one, please? Just leave that. Oh, no, go back one. We'll have that in a minute. Leave it a moment. Sorry, I thought we could have blanks, blank one in there, but it doesn't matter. You can look at Concord for the moment. But whilst you're doing that, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to one of my favourite stories in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, one of the things that we leaders have been encouraged to do recently is to read portions of God's scripture. And uh, this is quite a long story that we're going to cover here. So I'll just do do a quick recap um, as to what the situation is, and then we'll we'll pick up uh, a little way into the story. It's the story of David and Goliath, familiar to every one of you. And... uh, If you recall the story, you will remember that the Philistines had gone to war against the children of Israel. The Philistines were trying their best to subjugate Israel. And they were making a fairly good job of it. And here they were, lined up across a valley, on the hills on one side with the children of Israel, the armies of Israel, on the other side. But the Philistines thought that they got a super plan. They thought that we can actually win this war without too many losses here because they got this champion, this guy that was known as Goliath of Gath. Now, to give you some idea of his size, Goliath was, my height, nearly doubled, nearly doubled. I'm six foot, but Goliath was between nine and ten feet tall. He was a huge man. And to give you some idea of his strength as well as his size, his armour coat weighed more than a hundredweight. Now that's what he was walking around with, just his coat. Have you ever tried picking up a sack of potatoes? Or even a, a sack of coal? pretty heavy. And I'm talking about a full-size 100-weight sack. His coat was heavier than that. What's more, the point on his spear weighed more than the shot put that the men use in the Olympics. Has anyone ever picked up a shot? You know how heavy it is. It's really heavy. And yet the point of his spear was heavier than that. Now that gives you some idea of how big and how strong this guy was. And for 40 days he'd been coming out. 40 days, one in the morning and the evening, he'd been coming out and challenging the children of Israel to come and fight him. Because their plan was that if Goliath fought one of the Israelites and beat him, then they would be the masters and Israel would be subject to them, whereas if anyone could beat Goliath, which they thought they were onto a winner here, um, then they would become the servants of Israel. But they were clearly not expecting that to happen. So every morning and every evening you come out and issue this challenge, probably in some deep voice that terrified 
the Israelites. And during this time, there was a young shepherd boy called David. And he had been sent by his father to go and see how his elder three brothers were getting on in the, in the army of Israel. And so he'd grabbed some food from his father and had set off for the battle. And, and we'll pick up the story now. Okay? So, verse 20 then, we'll, we'll, we'll give you some idea. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse, his father, had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines and facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. And he will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father, father's family from taxes in Israel. Not a bad sort of incentive really, is it? David asked the men standing near him, what will be done? for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. David's pretty impressed by this. And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Sorry. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down just to watch the battle, didn't you? Now what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And David said, uh, uh, what David said was overheard and reported to King Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. Okay, we'll cut out a bit now because it's getting fairly lengthy. And... Um, We'll pick up again uh, in verse 38. There we are. So Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He, he put a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over 
and saw that he was just a boy, ruddy and handsome, but he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. On to verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and without a sword in his hand he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David then runs over, chops off his head and returns to the battle lines. And then we find at the end of it uh, the king asking a question. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner, that is Saul's uh, commander-in-chief, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse in Bethlehem. Okay great story. It's a shame we didn't have time to read it all because it's full of meaning to us. But in it we can see that the lessons that God gives us by allowing us to use the simple we talents we have in order to achieve the purposes that he has for us. He uses whatever we have to hand. It also shows us that we don't need to be intellectually superior. We don't need to be sophisticatedly equipped to do battle for God because he's given us all that we need for life and godliness. I think that's a scripture that Robin... uh, All right, put the next one up. So there's a, there's a scripture to remember. We have everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness. That's uh, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Not, note this well. Not some things we need. Everything we need. God's given you and I everything we need in order to achieve his purposes. So just as we can't dodge bullets like that Concord pilot said, neither could the Philistine giant dodge the stone that sunk in his head. But David had used what he had. He had a sling and he had five smooth stones in his pouch. And how much more effective this turned out to be 
than if he'd agreed to go out with the weapons that Saul, King Saul, wanted to give him. Five smooth stones chosen from a nearby stream. Why five? Do you think he expected to miss? Was he uncertain of his aim? I very much doubt it. I believe that David knew that it would only take one stone, one shot to fell Goliath. And I just choose to believe, this is me now, I just choose to believe that five smooth stones represent some of the qualities that God had been building into David as he prepared him for the life journey he planned for him. And we all know what that life entailed. Notice they were smooth stones. They weren't rough stones. They probably had all their edges rubbed away by the constant jostling as the water flowed over them in the stream. They'd been prepared over time, just like God prepares us over time for the tasks that only he knows and only you can perform. Every one of us is unique, quite unique in God's eyes. As I said, I think the story talks of five smooth stones for a purpose. And it makes us think more deeply what, what their significance are. So what do I believe? This is me now. What do I believe those five smooth stones might have signified? And here's what I imagine. And perhaps you might imagine something different. Um, it doesn't matter really. It's what you're prepared to let your minds accept in the Spirit with the help of the Holy Spirit. So here goes then. I think these five smooth stones represent five things. Okay, first thing. Humility underlined with boldness. An anointing from the Lord. A passion for God's purposes. A quiet confidence that God would always be with him and equipped and ready to use the natural gifts and abilities that God had given him. Five smooth stones, qualities which I think God was building and had built into David. So the first one then, leave it there. Humility underlined with boldness. He was humble, yet he was brave. Now remember, David was the last in the line of brothers, eight brothers. He was the eighth. And accordingly, he was given all the menial tasks to perform. It was his task to look after the sheep, whilst three of his elder brothers were attached, as you know, and we've read, to Saul's army. Accordingly, at, at a time of war, it was David who was given the task to carry the provisions uh, to them at the battlefront and to find out how things were going, to find out what, was being, uh, what the progress was. But it had also been David's task to play the harp to King Saul um, whenever the king was in, his, uh, in a, a state of depression, which occurred uh, fairly frequently. And he'd become Saul's armour-bearer. So it makes you wonder, how is it that Saul, King Saul, was saying, who is that lad? When he'd been seeing him all that time, playing the harp and, and being his armour bearer. Who is that lad? 
He clearly was oblivious to the things around him. Saul was tied up in his own affairs. He was completely absorbed by things that were to do with him and not what was happening outside. So David was well practiced at being a servant and it equipped him well for the time when God was going to make him Saul's successor and he was going to take over that role because David looked out of himself whereas Saul looked into himself. The thing is, and we need to learn this, there's nothing wrong in being content and willing to perform menial tasks. A servant heart pleases God and the character of Jesus is displayed and commended, and this is the, the character that Jesus uh, displayed and commended to his disciples about being a servant. He said in Mark 9 uh, verse 33 and when they've been arguing on the road he said what are you arguing about? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest and sitting down Jesus called the twelve and said if anyone wants to be first he must be the very last and the servant of all. But being everyone's servant didn't squash David's personality. It didn't cause him to slink into the background or show fear in, in the face of adversity. He practiced the skills he needed to do the task that he was given. Now I bet if you went around uh, the, the, the um, out, out, outside of Jerusalem and looked at the trees there, I bet they would all be chipped where he'd had his sling and he'd slung it and he'd whacked it against a tree and lumps of bark would have flown, flown off. So he was well practiced at simple things. And he would warn off an animal that came to threaten the sheep with his thing. He'd whiz a stone, you know, smack into the rocks nearby the animal that might be threatening the sheep and it would scare them off. And he'd also learnt to master the harp. And I'm convinced he's used this ability not only to um, comfort King Saul, but put many of his psalms to music when he worshipped God out in the countryside all by himself as he tended the sheep. So what does this quick example tell us about humility and boldness? God frequently allows us to undertake the menial as a preparation for the future. So never despise what you're doing now. However small it might seem to you, nothing is ever wasted in God's plan. And even our failures can be turned to God's advantage if we allow and if we're willing to learn from them. Remember too that your hobby or interest can be used for God. Your hobby or interest used for God. Even if you can't see any obvious link. Because the Bible tells us to do all things all things as unto the Lord. You know, sometimes Christians can criticise us for our pursuits. I can remember, can you remember the film Chariots of Fire? There was um, Eric Liddell, who was a Scottish athlete, selected for the Olympics. And yet, because he was a Christian and because he was going out on the mission field, he was being criticised for spending time running. And he made this lovely comment, which I thought was lovely at any rate. And whether it's true or not, it certainly appeared in the film. And he said, 
Whenever I run, he said, I feel God's pleasure. Whenever I run, I feel his pleasure. So if you can feel pleasure or God's pleasure in your interest, don't give it up and don't let criticism deter you. God will almost certainly use it sometime. Second stone. Second stone is an anointing from the Lord. David, despite his youth, was anointed. Samuel had chosen him under God's direction over all his other brothers. Yet he was almost an afterthought. They didn't even think of bringing him in before Saul to see if he would be selected. His father counted him as insignificant. Surely this anointing that he finally received from Samuel must have had great significance to David. But it didn't lead to arrogance, just like it did with Saul. David quietly got on with the task at hand and patiently mated for the moment when God would use him. But to know God's touch, something that he's called you to, leads to change for the better. All of us, when we came to Christ, were made holy in his sight. A holy transaction took place and God breathed eternal life into our spirit. He forgave us, breathed the presence of Jesus into us, clothed us with ceremonial garments of righteousness and gave us the task of living the remainder of our lives in submission to his plan. We all have an anointing and it's of God and it's by his spirit. We've been chosen specially. You and I have been chosen to be part of God. So recognize who you are. Draw confidence from the fact that God's chosen you. And don't be afraid to stand for what you know to be right. Even in the face of what appears to be insurmountable odds that Goliath obviously represented to a soldier. God himself is with you. Third stone. I call this a passion for God's purposes. David loved God. We know that because he spent time composing psalms, which we all read from time to time. He spent time in worship, considering God's ways. 